Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Scott. Welcome to Skipped On Shuffle, a podcast where we delve into an overlooked song by a popular artist. Today we're going to talk about the band Living Color and their song Sacred Ground from their 2003 album Kaleidoscope. The song is an interesting one for a skipped on shuffle episode in that there are there is another version of the song that exists that is not on this album and appeared on a compilation album. Yeah, I feel like if you because it's on a live album too, I think. I'm pretty sure. So really there's like more than two versions of this song that you could find if you were, you know, looking for the song on Spotify, for example. And each one of them is gonna sound pretty different from from each other but they're all still the same song so that does make it interesting i don't think i don't think in our in our history i mean this is this is like we're in the mid in the mid 40s of episodes now i don't think we've done a song where there's this many versions of it available that are you know a different take on one kind of yeah well i mean we'll talk about a, a couple of the differences but yeah there hasn't been I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, so this is this is a very unique track for 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 this, and I'm excited to talk about this because this is one of those bands that gets gets the whole band gets overlooked. Really, I mean, this is a very important band for this a lot is a of reasons. Skipped on shuffle entire band. Yeah, this episode. if we were to do it, yeah, if we were to do a skipped on shuffle band version, this would probably be one of the bands that we would do because it's one of those groups that drastically changed the music landscape when they first arrived on the scene and, and to this day influence all manners of music from all different genres. But yeah, but you, you won't see, you know, they're not, they're not touring Madison square garden, you know, they're not filling up arenas or anything. They're a a working touring band, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to talk about this band and not be like, Oh, everyone knows this and everyone knows all about it because it's just not that way for some reason. Yeah. Um, probably most, People know Cult of Personality. Right. Uh, mainly just because that song has, I think it's always been around, but I feel like there was some sort of resurgence in the 2000s or something. I, I don't know. I, I, I oddly enough had never heard the song before. And I think I'll, I can, I'll talk about this a little bit later. But it's in the 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 PlayStation Guitar Hero <laughs> game that I think I first. I you know you got to hand it to those those Guitar Hero and rock bands. Oh, yeah, they, they, they they exposed kids. You know, a lot of a young lot kids, of different. Yeah, a lot of stuff that they never would have heard. You know, they just it just wouldn't like. I remember doing Rock Band one time with, at a party with. Oh, that friends. was the other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. it was Rock and uh, and we did Judith by a Perfect Circle, and I mean like that was like a a, a fairly well known radio hit when it came out, but. There is no reason that like a 12-year-old kid would be listening to that song <laughs> unless it was on rock band. So who knows how many kids were exposed to A Perfect Circle and then Tool and then, you know, all these other groups that are associated with those groups uh, just from this video game. So, yeah, you got it. And Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, too. That exposed a lot of uh, that, like, helped a lot of kids, like, mm. get into music that they probably wouldn't have gone into. Anyway, we're getting way off track here. <laughs> we got to talk about Living Color and the song Sacred Ground. Sacred ground. Sacred ground. How many times must we tell them? Are they never gonna learn? 
Living Color formed in New York City in 1984. The band was started by Vernon Reed, a British-born guitarist who was raised in New York City. In the 80s, Reed had been playing with many different bands in the city, most notably an experimental jazz-rock-funk fusion band called Decoding Society. He decided to strike out on his own with the band Living Color. In the first few years of starting the band, it had a very fluid lineup with many musicians coming and going. But by 1986, the lineup of Living Color solidified with Corey Glover on vocals, Muzz Skillings on bass, Will Calhoun on drums, and Reed playing guitar. One notable fact about this lineup is that they are all black rock musicians. It's so weird to say that and and have it be weird, yeah. but it's true. I mean, you 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 can find black musicians in rock bands, but usually it's like just one or two, you know, or or they're just backing a, a prominent artist. Like David Bowie's band mm, yeah. had several black musicians in it, but you know, David Bowie's at the front of the stage and they're just in the background doing their thing. But a band of four black musicians playing not not just like rock music but heavy rock music is is an anomaly and that's that's weird like that's a weird thing i want to just put that out there that is weird it shouldn't be that way it shouldn't but be it, that way. but that's how it and that, especially at this time yeah so so we're talking late 80s that this band is 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 forming to 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 say that in the 80s or even now that having four black musicians play rock music is is weird it's it's weird but i i, I I don't like it. I wish it wasn't the case, but Living Color is a representation that, that that it is weird. So Living Color starts playing New York City clubs, most famously CBGB. During this time, Reed was also hired to play guitar on Mick Jagger's solo album, Primitive Cool. Jagger came to see a Living Color show and loved the band so much that he produced a few demo tracks for them, which helped the band land a deal with Epic Records. Produced by Ed Stasium, who had worked with the Ramones and Talking Heads, their debut album, Vivid, was released in 1988. The album hit number six on the charts, thanks to the strength of their most iconic song, Cult of Personality. The title references a book by Russian leader Nikita Khrushchev on Stalin, called On the Cult of Personality and Its Consequences, and incorporates clips of speeches from a number of famous political figures of the 20th century. Let's take a listen. The cult of personality I know your anger I know your dreams I've been everything you wanna be Oh, I'm the cult of personality Like Mussolini The music video for Cult of Personality went into rotation on MTV, helping raise the visibility of the band. The song would go on to win a Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance. Vivid was praised, and as four black musicians playing rock music, Living Color made quite an impact on the music scene, with everyone unsure of how the band and their music would be received in the rock genre, which doesn't have many people of color. The album features a number of songs that openly discuss the experience of being black in America. The song Which Way to America points out the dichotomy of white and black experiences in the country. And here's a sample of some of the lyrics. I look at the TV, your America's doing well. I look out the window, my America's catching hell. I change the channel, your America's doing fine. I read the headlines, my America's doing time. At a show in London, singer Corey Glover quipped, Hi, I'm your new neighbor. I love that. That's yeah, great. that's cool. It's perfect. The band toured the US and Europe to promote Vivid and opened for the Rolling Stones during their Steel Wheels tour. When their follow-up record, Time's Up, came out in 1990, the band continued its momentum. 
While only debuting at number 82, it quickly shot into the top 20, peaking at number 13. While it didn't sell as well as Vivid, which eventually became double platinum, Time's Up would achieve gold status, and the record would win the band another Grammy Award for Best Hard Rock Performance. Time's Up is more experimental and varied than its predecessor. Many black musicians and actors make appearances on the record, including Little Richard, Queen Latifah, and James Earl Jones. There are spoken word parts and sound effects, and the band goes from metal to fusion to soul with every track. You can hear some of that variety on the funk and R&B-inspired single, Love Rears Its Ugly Head. I like one description of the record I read that called it an album of and about self-determination. Again, the themes of being black in America, as well as being a black rock musician, come up in songs like Pride. And here's a sample of some of those lyrics. You like our hair. You love our music. Our culture is large, so you abuse it. Take time to understand I'm an equal man. And then later, don't ask me why I play this music. It's my culture, so naturally I use it. I state my claim to say it's here for all to play. Glover and Reed both say the band writes about what they see, and many songs take a broader view on life with themes about defining yourself as an individual. The band says they take a cue from blues and gospel music in letting out and expressing the things that trouble or bother them to find relief and solace. In 1991, Living Color would join the first Lollapalooza tour and also release an EP called Biscuits, which is since out of print due to legal reasons, but pick yourself up a used copy because there's some cool covers on that. They cover Talking Heads and Jimi Hendrix. In 1992, citing musical differences, bassist Muzz Skillings would leave the band and be replaced by Doug Wimbish. Their first album with Wimbish was 1993's Stain, a dark, heavy, and pessimistic record, as you might gather with song titles like Go Away, Ignorance is Bliss, and Mind Your Own Business. The album only reached number 26, and critics were split by the more abrasive sound of the band. Here's Leave It Alone, which was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Hard Rock Performance. The band toured to support the record, but started to drift apart. Not helping matters was a lawsuit from a band called Stain that forced Sony to stop production of the album for over a decade. In early 1995, the band decided to break up. Corey Glover said in an interview, We didn't break up because we couldn't find a musical direction. We broke up because we couldn't speak to one another. That was it more than anything else. We couldn't communicate our musical ideas to one another, which made it difficult to do this kind of music. Because there are so many styles and there are so many things we want to say, Personally, I think it was necessary for us to take a break. We needed to explore our own ideas and figure out what was happening with us and take our own musical steps as well. In the time, Will and Doug and I never stopped playing together. Vernon went out to explore his musical life. I went out and had a solo career. I tried to make sense of myself. So when I came back to this whole, it would be a lot more concise. 
As Glover mentions, the band pursued a number of other projects, too many to list here. But in December 2000, at a concert at CBGB's, the band reunited. Wimbish and Calhoun's drum and bass band Headfake was playing. Glover and Reed would join them on stage at the show. Shortly afterwards, they began work on what would be Kaleidoscope. We're going to talk about that album shortly, since our song of today, Sacred Ground, is on there. Uh, but take a listen to the song, Song Without Sin. After Kaleidoscope, which ended up being their only album with Sanctuary Records, Living Color signed with Megaforce Records, a label known for representing metal artists, and their fifth album, The Chair in the Doorway, was released in 2009. It landed at number 161 on the Billboard charts and received positive reviews. It's a much shorter album than Kaleidoscope, clocking in at about 45 minutes as opposed to Kaleidoscope's hour running time, but it's a much more consistent album with touches of experimentation, and we'll talk about the sound of Kaleidoscope in a little bit. Um, but the songs feel really tight and the band exploring a number of genres, including a more identifiable blues influence on the tracks. But let's take a listen to the catchy rock tune that served as the album's only single, Behind the Sun. Living behind the dark side of the sun Everyone's here, but nobody band embarked on a world tour to promote the album. In 2010, Glover discussed getting to work on a new record with hopes that it would be released in the following year, 2011. In a 2012 interview, Reed said the band was writing new material with plans for a 2013 release for the album. In 2014, the band announced their next record, Shade, would be out in the fall and be supported with a tour that would also celebrate their 30th anniversary. Reed said of the forthcoming record, Shade is the sound of a band coming to terms with its shadows and light. From the blue pulpit of Robert Johnson to the mean streets of Brooklyn to the golden lure of Hollywood, Shade is the next chapter of a unique American journey. But the album didn't come out that year. <laughs> or the next year. In 2016, Glover confirmed the album was on its way and they were mixing tracks. In an interview with Loudwire, Glover said in response to the question, what was the overall creative and recording process for you with Shade? He answered, long. It took us almost four years to make this record. We went through problems with managers, with record companies, and schedules. It just took forever, and finally we got it done. I can't wait to get that process over with so I can go back and start working on new stuff again, personally, and just writing new things. Part of the process was that we weren't going to compromise on a lot of stuff. There were some sonic things that we weren't going to compromise on. We needed to get it right. It took long enough, so hopefully it's right. I mean, we'll still have to fix things. Right to us is that you don't go, oh, if only I had done this. At the same time, there's something about discovering something as you play it that changes it and makes the difference between the recorded version and the live version. Cult of Personality Live doesn't sound the way it was recorded because we've been playing it for almost 30 years and it changes based on the environment, the gear, and the temperament and all that. I think we're satisfied with Shade for what it is as a recording. Glover also said in that interview he expected the album would be out by fall. 
He was right about that, but it ended up being fall of 2017, <laughs> eight years after The Chair in the Doorway. Shade hit number 12 on the Billboard's Hard Rock charts, and the album also charted in the Netherlands, Switzerland, and Scottish charts. So there's that. It's a great record, so I'm glad some people somewhere in the world know it. <laughs> Here's the first single, Come On. One of these mornings, uh, I'll have the strength to tell you how I feel. Won't be afraid of what's being said. See, I won't scrape or kneel. The worst form effortlessly from my mind to my mouth. Penetrates your skin like an original sin. Glover has sounded optimistic about new material coming shortly, either in the form of an EP or another record. But let's hop back to 2003 and Kaleidoscope in today's song, Sacred Ground. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Right about now, in most podcasts, you'd be hearing an ad for something, uh, but we are trying to keep Skipped on Shuffle ad-free, and the way we're going to be able to do that is through Patreon. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash skippedonshuffle. Any donations go to support the costs associated with running this podcast. When you listen to Living Color's first record, Vivid, which came out in 1988, the first thing you notice when you hear it is is how huge this band sounds. I mean, the, the, the drums sound like they recorded in an arena. The guitars are just like in your face. The vocals are soaring. It's it's very polished. It sounds very much like a like a like an 80s band, but injected with some some attitude and soul that wasn't really present in a lot of like the hair metal bands at the time. Then you put on this album, Kaleidoscope, which is what, 2003. So we're talking 15 years later, you put that on and you say, you know, it's a, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like vivid at all. It's, it's very raw, very underproduced, almost like, I don't know. It almost sounds like and this is like, I don't want to insult them by any time, but it's, it almost sounds like a local band. Like it doesn't sound like a band that has two Grammys on its shelf. It doesn't sound like a band that created, you know, one of the, the most genre defying records of the eighties. So it's, it's interesting to think about like, why is that? Like, why did they choose to do that? Why didn't they go to LA and record a huge sound? I mean, this is living color. This is a band, like I said, Grammy award winning genre defying band why didn't they do all that stuff? It could have just been something simple, like they just didn't have the money. But if they didn't have the money, they still would have had the ability and the clout to make a record that sounded more like, you know, most records that come out in 2003. But this record doesn't. So you only can come to the conclusion that they they intended for it to sound this way. I think based on the history and talking about Shade and how long it took them to get the sound right and the fact that they even worked on this album for a couple of years, I think we're that's the one conclusion we can come to is they wanted it to sound like that. And, and, and when you listen to stain, which was the album they released just before they broke up, 
they you read critical reviews and they're they're harsh about the the sound of the record where they're describing things that we hear even more on kaleidoscope than on stain which is just this really rough sound yeah i think like yeah i agree that there's only one conclusion to come to which is that they intended for it to sound this way and the reason i think they probably did it is because we you know it had been so this is 2003 when kaleidoscope comes out so that's uh 10 years after stain and 15 years after we we last you know the last huge huge song from them which came out in 1988 so the band has to sort of come back after this time away and they probably thought to themselves like oh do we come back sounding like we did in 1988 or is that the bad, you know, the wrong thing to do. So I think they just decided like, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to come back sounding like a raw, fresh band that just kind of clawed its way out from the streets in a way, you know, which, which is great. And a really interesting thing to do because you'd think that, I don't know, you'd think that coming back from 10 year hiatus, you think that you'd want to play it safe. You'd want to be like, Mm. oh no, let's try and make it sound as much like it did back in the day when people, you know, when we were touring these huge places and, and winning Grammys and all that stuff, let's do that. But no, they didn't. They, this is a band with, with, with a huge amount of integrity and the guts to be like, no, we're going to do something wildly different than we've ever done before with this record. And so regardless of whether you like Kaleidoscope or not, or even if you're a living color fan and you say to yourself, Kaleidoscope isn't as good as Vivid, you still have to respect that this band like took a massive amount of chance to make this one. I think one reason why the record sounds the way that it does is when you think about a lot of the themes that are on the record, which is this album is very much about 9-11 and the time surrounding that. Corey Glover in some interview basically said most of this album is about the day before and the day after. And a, a lot of the song, and you can get this just from the song titles, like things like Operation Mind Control, where there's this already by that point, we were already suspicious of reasons that the U S government gave for invading Iraq and everything going on with that, that this album is kind of about a lot of the noise in the world and trying to figure out what's true and what's the right thing to do. And I I think that is sort of why when you listen to this record, the one thing that stands out to you is how loud and muddy Vernon Reed's guitar is And I feel like it's representative of that. And Corey Glover almost has to like scream to be heard. And I feel like in some way that's kind of a reflection of what's going on in the world where there's all this chaos and uncertainty and you kind of need to stand up and scream, whether it's as, as they say to, you know, let out certain emotions or just even make yourself heard. Jason and I both lived through 9-11 and the whole deal that happened around it. And we can, at least we talked about this before we started recording this episode. We can remember that uncertainty. You didn't know like who the enemy was or, or what had happened. And then you had, you know, all the conspiracy theories coming out and saying like, oh, this was a planned demolition. And it was 
chaos, total chaos. So yeah, if you're going to make a record that's strongly inspired by what happened with those times, then yeah, like it, it kind of should be chaotic. It kind of should be hard to listen to and hard to decipher what's really going on. And so I think that if you come from that perspective, Kaleidoscope achieves that in spades. We definitely pick up on a lot of the themes that you mentioned with a song like Operation Mind Control, which obviously about propaganda and about the disinformation or misinformation that is out there surrounding basically everything going on in the world. And I mean, they're 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 pretty forward about it, where the lyrics are Operation Mind Control, the battle for America's soul. So it's not like there's anything, you know, there's, there's, there's no, there's no leeway there. Like <laughs> they're, they're, they're pretty upfront about all of this. And I feel like that marks a lot of this record and especially the song we're going to talk about today, sacred ground. Interestingly though, this song is distinctly not about nine 11, or at least it, it could be, I could, you could connect it to similar themes of what nine 11 is, you know, what happened with nine 11 and the problems that, that, that came about because of that. But Interestingly, this particular song, because it was written prior to this album coming out, as we mentioned earlier at the top of the episode, it, it has a different kind of lyrical structure. But I still I feel like it definitely fits into the thematic uh, idea of what this album is trying to get across. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there is another version of Sacred Ground that came out on a compilation called Pride that was released in 1995 after the band had originally broken up. So this song was kind of hanging around and there are a few changes. Number one, the song fits the sound of this album, that kind of muddy, crazy sound. So it kind of turns down some of the, if you, if you listen to a lot of people like the original version, because it sounds more like the original living color sound, especially the lead guitar parts and things. And notably the song, extracts a verse from that original version, which I think is important. So looking at the lyrics, it's kind of interesting because the song is incredibly repetitious and there's basically kind of only one verse now and a bridge. Basically, yeah. And, and of so, course, that and, just and, repeats and, and, over yeah, and over yeah, again. Yeah. Yeah. So, so even the verse is a repetition, which is basically for all those trying to make a stand fighting to protect their tribal land. So that's repeated a few times. And even though that's repeated, that's kind of the only thing that looks like a verse. And then you get the bridge, which is Rainbow Warrior, Chico Mendez, all those dissidents you try to suppress. How many more martyrs must there be? Will this be our poison legacy? 
And then everything else is just how many times must we tell them? Are they never going to learn? This is sacred ground. So the song is obviously, again, these, a lot of these are, are pretty blatant about what they're talking about, which is standing up for your rights and your space that you occupy and your culture, your culture. Yeah. Yeah. So taking a look at the rainbow warrior line and mentioning Chico Mendez, who was an environmentalist in Brazil, basically trying to protect uh, rubber tree workers and protect the Amazon from deforestation. So he's described as a rainbow warrior, which is kind of an interesting phrase to evoke because the line is supposedly about a Native American prophecy about people standing up to protect the environment. And it's what's inspired a lot of environmentalists and hippies and all sorts of things. But that story is made up and comes from a Christian evangelical religious tract that was handed out to try to evangelize Native American communities. So I think they're saying the right thing. I don't know if there's that extra layer of realizing that it's it's this kind of co-opted phrase. Yeah, they probably just way. didn't know. I didn't know. Like, yeah, I, I, I mean, I had to, I had to look it up. Yeah, and, we, and we looked it up because we were like, oh, like we let's go into a little bit deeper. What is Rainbow Warriors? What is this all about? And then that's when you discovered that that it was just you know Christian evangelicals making it up, being like, oh, this will be a great way to bring in the Native American audience and replace yeah and replace yeah the right. culture, which is interesting in a song that's so much about yeah preserving yeah. But we'll just go ahead and assume that they didn't know this, and they assumed that Rainbow Warriors were a legitimate Native American thing. But uh, so yeah, what he clearly is what he's trying to say is that this guy is yeah this guy is standing up for what's right. Yes, and and, and he's being pushed down by you know what we'll just assume is, you know, the government, the man, you know, the people who don't want to see the preservation of tribal lands, uh, historical lands, places, you know, or as we'll just use the term sacred ground, places where a culture has a direct connection and to eliminate that land or to take that away from them, you know, strongly hurts their culture. And so he's, you know, uh, Glover is basically saying like, how many times do we have to tell you, you can't fucking do this. You know, like that's basically what this song is about. If you were to, to sum up this song into one sentence, that's what it is. And then the need to continually, I mean, he repeats this a yeah. ton of times in here and blatantly saying, well, clearly we just always need to be doing this because if we don't stand up for it, somebody will come in and take it away from us. Yeah, and then you have uh, modern times, to you know, like today, like, you know, so this is 2003 when Kaleidoscope comes out, so it's 2020 now, so we're talking 17 years. And it's still... Yeah, we're still e talking about the, 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 the yeah. pipelines and, the, and you know, what are we going to do with the, with the Native American reservations and all these problems that we're having and, you know, and then going back to just even what living color is for black musicians, we're still having problems with, you know, racism and 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 black history and, and opt, you know, co-opting black culture and all these issues. And it's like living color has been singing the same songs for 30 plus years now. It's just, it's crazy. And so, yeah, the idea of him repeating over and over, how many times, how many times? Yeah, it makes for kind of a repetitive rock song. But when you think about it thematically, you're like, yeah, like that's what you got to do. You just got to keep saying it over and over and over again. How many times do we have to do this? So we had mentioned that a verse gets taken out and it's, I think the reason they took out the verse is because that one verse kind of narrows, I think, some of the scope of making it about 
you know, protecting your native lands, whatever that might mean. Whereas opposed to the lyrics they took out is for those who lie before the bulldozers and chainsaws battling the mega corpse. Here they come with their cash draws, grin, cash draw grins, vampires, parasites, and vermin. So I think it makes it a little more specifically about deforestation rather than protecting, in, like I said, in, yeah, rather in, than insert in general. Insert your cultural heritage yeah. here. So yeah, I think yeah. that was kind of one big decision that they made was clearly like, this has resonance beyond just this one location and this one place. And if we kind of take that out, then it means, it means more. Yeah. yeah, You could, I mean, obviously this might be a little bit of a stretch, but you could, you could also apply it to something like gentrification. Mm. You know, you could take it from like, Oh, like, you know, poor minorities living in an area like in Brooklyn or something, which they have a song open letter to a landlord on their first album where they talk about. Yeah. yeah, So, so so it's just consistent. It's just, it's crazy to think that, you know, you have a band like living color who, like you said, at the top of the episode are writing about what they see, you know, they're turning, on the television they're looking at their cultures and they're saying like oh what is happening and they're commenting on it and they're they're saying the same things for so long for 30 years now and it's like it's just crazy that they have to keep repeating themselves and they have to keep you know this what what would be wonderful is if living color ran out of material (laughs) like (laughs) like if they'd be like well we we have nothing to write about anymore everybody's having a good time like we don't know what to do like that would be amazing you know obviously i love living color and i'm glad they exist but i'm sure the band members themselves would love it if they'd be like yeah we just we we can't be a band anymore because we can't write about this stuff first time I really became acquainted with Living Color is seeing them open for King Crimson. So Scott and I went to a show in 2003. So they were touring, they, they were touring as the opener to King Crimson, while also touring to promote Kaleidoscope, you know, their first album in 10 years. And somehow I didn't really know anything about the band. I don't, this, this blew me away. When we were talking I, about this originally, I was like, what? You didn't know what this band was? I don't, I, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I had heard cult of personality or I, I had heard it and never like it, it did just didn't sink in for me for some reason, which is crazy to think about. When yeah. You hear so that so song. you're like, we're going to see this King Crimson show and living color is opening up and you're just like, Oh, this must just be some band. And, like, and I remember somebody mentioning my, I think cause we went with my dad um, and my friend Ryan and I, think my dad had mentioned like oh i remember that band from you know late 80s early 90s and i for some reason i didn't look anything up about that i think i was just so pumped that we were going to see king crimson in this really small place that i I was just like oh okay well somebody says they're good and i'll look forward to that and i was just blown away the band is they put on such a fantastic live show i can't describe like the amount of energy that they put into their performances and Vernon Reed's guitar playing where I'm at the King Crimson show waiting for Robert Fripp, like one of the best guitarists of all time to show up. And here's a guy who's basically like competition <laughs> and it, it like blew my mind. Just his guitar playing where you watch Vernon Reed play a solo and he's basically like strumming a solo 
because he's playing notes so fast. <laughs> it was insane. So th- I, I think of that. Um, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I think about um, sitting down with friends playing like rock band, guitar hero stuff, and all the good times associated with that, and especially with cult personality specifically. Um, and I also think about we talked a lot about this record and how it's kind of different and experimental in some ways and in terms of the sound. And there's so many bands that unbeknownst to me, I pick up like the most experimental record and that's the place where I start. And it's just strange that it always seems to happen that way. So with living color, after I saw them, I was like, okay, I clearly have to buy this album because it's amazing. And I remember throwing it on and and noticing the sound and not really being able to describe like why or anything, but finding other music and being like, Oh, this is like way more straightforward. And then realizing afterwards, like, Oh, I had come at like the weirdest time in this band. I feel like there's so many bands where I'm so used to the more experimental side of things. Cause that's just how I happened to come in to listening to the band. So when I first, when I bought my first REM record, I bought up which any REM fans out there know that's yeah, basically we, we, the, we, the weirdest album. Yeah, we talked a lot about that yeah, uh, yeah, in our, in our episode. Yeah. yeah, and I was just like, no, this sounds totally normal to me. With, <laughs> with Pearl Jam, it was when No Code came out. Uh, with Solo Pilots, it was Tiny Music. It's just all these bands that for some reason, once I start to get into them or for when I go to buy the first album, I feel like I always pick the weirdest thing. And that might just be... I think that's a bad part about all these reviews and everything now, because I feel like for an album like Kaleidoscope, somebody would probably, if you had a ranking of the best living color album, somebody would probably put it on the bottom and you might end up avoiding it in that case. And I feel like you would shortchange yourself because this is like a really cool record done in a really interesting way. And I I just feel like there's probably so many people where I don't want to tell you to completely ignore reviews because sometimes, you know, people do have legitimate, complaints or legitimate points of view about oh this record's better this you know this record does this or has these songs on it but i feel like you end up yeah you end up missing a lot as 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 a result of that so i'm glad some of these records i was just like oh this is the new one or this is the one i see on the shelf and i'm just going to pick it up and buy it and not think too much about it cuz i feel like sometimes you just put too much weight into what other people are saying or what the diehard fans are saying. And there's always going to be in any album ranking, there's always going to be something on the bottom for some reason. And it might be a really valid reason or probably in the case of this one, it's just that, you know, it didn't have that more commercial gloss or it didn't have uh, the songs weren't as tightly structured for whatever it might be. So I don't know. Yeah. I feel like it, it, it reminds me like what you're just talking there makes me think of Fiona Apple who has a very, very limited selection of song, of, of albums. So if you were to rank Fiona Apple albums, one of them's got to be at the bottom, and it would probably be the, the, the one that had the song that we covered in our very first episode. Yeah, Idler Wheel. Yeah, I, yeah. Idler Wheel. Uh, uh, it but would that's, be, that's just how the works. But, but yeah, not, there's, yeah, there's four albums, and one of them's got to be at the bottom. That doesn't mean that Idler Wheel is a bad record compared to the other ones. It just, it just means that it's not quite as good as, you know, maybe criminal uh, criminal uh it may be not quite title. as good as title so it's it's 
it's interesting to put that into perspective. When you have a, a band like, I don't know, like Pink Floyd, who have like so many records. Yeah, there are some. Yeah, there's there going to be a little bit of difference can, between the one at yeah. the top and the one at the bottom. But yeah, with uh, with with Living Color, they've got a, a very they, small selection they have of albums. Six albums and they're all good for their own reasons. Yeah, yeah so it's interesting you put it that way. That's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. For me, Living Color, the first exposure that I had to them was uh, at, at a certain point in the early 90s, there was a channel... E Entertainment. I don't even. I mean, I haven't had cable in years, so I don't even know if E Entertainment is still around. But E Entertainment somehow got a deal that they were able to air uh, previous Saturday Night Live episodes, just as basically syndicated things. So you could watch, you know, four or five Saturday Night Live episodes in a row at like two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, during the week. And I remember. I don't remember if it was because I was home from school that it was the summertime or I was sick or something. I don't remember, but I was watching. Get a job. Get a job, Scott. Yeah, yeah. I was like 14 or something. I, I, I was sitting at home and watching a bunch of SNL episodes back to back. And Living Color was the guest on on one of them. And I, I don't, I just remember, you know, I believe it was Mel Gibson was the host and Mel Gibson said, you know, and now living color and the camera pans over to the stage and I was just like, what the hell is happening on my television right now? Because there were four black guys playing very, very loud rock music. Of course, they were playing Cult of Personality. And Glover, he had these very long, it may not be, it was either braids or dreadlocks. I can't remember. Very long hair. And just, he was headbanging and thrashing around and the band was so tight. And Vernon Reed, you know, his guitar was like way up by his <laughs> neck, which, you know, you don't really see too often anymore. And he was just so tight. The band was incredible. And I was like, what is this? This band is like, they're, it's like they're from the future. Like, what is this? And of course, you know, that episode came out like 1988, you know? So it was like, it was alarming how ahead of their time living color was, you know, now, you know, if you, if you watch, if you, if you go on YouTube, it's very hard to find SNL performances on YouTube, which is really annoying, but that's a whole other commentary that I'm not going to go into. If you go on YouTube or wherever you find videos like this and you find living colors jam on, on, on cult of personality on Saturday night live. And then immediately after that play the first time rage against the machine comes out on stage on SNL, you will immediately see the parallels. You will be like, holy crap. It's like Rage Against the Machine just did what Living Color did, but just tweaked it slightly and and that's who they are. And so it's like when you think about that, you really get the idea of like how ahead of their time Living Color was. And I don't know, whenever I hear Cult of Personality or whenever I'm listening to Living Color just like, you know, randomly throughout my life, you know, I immediately think of that moment of sitting on my living room floor watching this performance and being like, where did this band come from? And and also, you know, not really understanding it as a kid, but feeling like something was weird. And, you know, and like, obviously, like, it's because they were black. Like, it was it was weird for me. It was weird being a young white kid who only saw white people with guitars, you know, and you never saw a black person holding a guitar, especially in a loud rock band like Living Color. And I remember feeling weird about it. Like, wh- like why is this weird, you know? Like, why, why, why doesn't, why don't I see this all yeah, the time? Yeah, when you think about it, you're just like... Jimi Hendrix, yeah, and, like and then can, a large, and then a very large gap in time. Yeah. And even Jimi Hendrix, the other two guys in the band, yeah, in the, were white, in the yeah. experience were white guys, you yeah. know. So it's like a band of four black musicians. Why was this weird, you know? And even nowadays, like I don't even know. Like I cannot, off the top of my head, name you a band that is a rock band that has four 
or you know, is is all black. Music. I'm sure there's. I'm there's, sure there are plenty there of them. Are but bands I, out there, but I yeah, they don't name. hit that level of visibility anywhere. And that and that really, or sucks. at least in the United States. Yeah, it really sucks. And and today, it, it makes me think that if if there was a band like Living Color, like an all all black musician rock band that played SNL, because obviously SNL is still a touchstone for 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 culture in our in our society at the moment. I feel like that it, there would be another kid my age right now today in 2020 who would sit there on their living room floor and see that band, this this band that I don't know if they exist or not, come out and rock their faces off and be like, "Wow, I I've never seen this before." To to think that that's it's been 30 years and that hasn't changed is really is really saddening, and I can only hope that you know there are people listening to this episode that you know go out and listen to living color and get into it. And, you know, even if you only listen to cult of personality, like that's fine. Like the idea that you can find this band playing this type of music, the way that they do is, is really important. And I can only hope that it inspires people to listen to them more and maybe even inspire somebody to pick up a guitar who might be a young black musician and be like, I'm going to start a band and it's going to be like this because we need more of that because like, this is a white man's game in rock music and it's, and it, it shouldn't be, it should be much more multicultural than it is. Rock music is all about acceptance and, and pushing boundaries and doing what you want to do and living the life that you want to live. And that's not a white person's mantra. That's, that's everybody's mantra. And I feel like rock music needs to have much more multiculturalism put into it. And it should start now. It's living color tried to start it in 1988, but they need to continue it now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Please visit our website at www.skippedonshuffle.com for more news about other episodes and our upcoming schedule. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please visit skippedonshuffle.com for links to all of our social media pages.